A resurrected community. In the sermon series, Community, spoken by Pastor Peter Ahn and Pastor Sunita Ponton. Today we're here to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This isn't just something that we come and celebrate that happened 2,000 years ago and we just remember a past event, but the resurrection has implications for our lives in a tremendous way. Absolutely. We are here because Jesus died on the cross for our sins. The Bible says that he became sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. But not just that, though we were dead in our sins, we have now been made alive with Christ Jesus. And that is what we celebrate on Resurrection Sunday. And that's why over the next six weeks, we're launching a new series called Community. And we believe that because Christ has resurrected from the dead, there are serious implications on what that could mean for you and for me as we choose. We got to choose this to live in Christian community. And so for the next few weeks, we want to share with you why Christian community is so unique and so different and far greater than any community that this world has to offer. We'll call that secular community. Why is it so much greater? And we're going to talk about that today, but over the next six weeks, we hope that you'll join us. And, And on top of that, for the next six weeks. We really want you to write your name on these name tags. We want to learn your names. We really do. If this is your church, you call this to be your church, and we still don't know your name, please forgive us, but we don't want you to feel like strangers anymore. We want to learn your name. We want you to learn our name. And more than that, we hope that that would begin the process of us wanting to learn the story behind the name. That's what we're hoping will happen. And we really believe that through this series, God is going to lead us into that place. And so, Sunita, you have a very interesting name. I have never met another Sunita in my entire life. Have you? Thank Nobody, you. right? It is such a unique name. What does it mean? And uh, where did you get that name? And... Uh, Uh, Has anyone ever butchered your name before? Yes, yeah. So, um, yes, I do have a very unique name, and I'd always wish that it had some, like, deeper meaning. Sometimes you meet people, and they have these names, and it's like, oh, my name means God's blessing upon the earth. (laughs) And that is not my name. (laughs) Um, My name is Sunita. I'm named after my mom's best friend, and actually her name is Brenza Sunita, so I have her middle name. And um, she and my mom grew up together in North Carolina. They moved to New York City together. They were roommates together. And fun fact, these best friends married best friends, so my father and his best friend. Um, but after all these years, I have not really met another Sunita. And, um, but it is often mispronounced, and because of this spelling, usually. And so I usually don't mind it so much, um, particularly when people first meet me, because I'm like, you, you're getting it, you're you know, just sort of learning it. But it's really much harder when you've known someone for a while and it's like, man, could you just like try to get it right? So, so that's what I'm hoping that we do over this season, that we really try to get each other's names right and learn the stories. Well, so for a lot of people, uh, they'll say Sonetta. Mm-hmm. And I said that actually too when I first met her. And she said, Peter, my name is very easy. Just think of the name Anita and add an S in front of it. Sunita. That's it. And I never forgot that at that point. Yeah. 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 But you don't understand what it's like because your name is Peter. And so it's very simple. But have you ever been mistaken for anyone or has anyone messed up your name anyway? Unfortunately, I have. Just last week, I actually ran into Chick-fil-A to pick up some dinner for the family. I ordered the food on the app. So usually you don't have to wait. Just go in and grab it. And as I walked into the, the restaurant, actually, I was running into the restaurant because I kind of double parked a little bit. And as I was running into the restaurant, there were these five teenage boys and they looked at me and as I was running in I heard one of them says there goes Yao Ming (laughs) and I was just like again do I look like that dude (laughs) I mean like he's 
13 inches taller than me. And like, I just, for once, for once, I really wish people would mistake me for Shohei Otani. Because <laughs> if that happened, I'd be like, yo, give me a fist bump. Thank you, right? So when they said, there goes Yao Ming, I just said, what did you just say? And he pretended to ignore me, didn't say anything. And so I just went to get my food and it was a long wait actually. And I was upset because it triggered me. It took me back to my, my school days when kids would make fun of me for being Asian. And I wanted to teach these kids a lesson, but then I started to get afraid because I thought, Sunita, what happens if these kids are part of our after-school program? And what happens if you invite me to come and speak one day at the, at the Metro Life program? And then they see me and they're like, wait a minute, isn't that the guy who cursed us out at Chick-fil-A? <laughs> so I refrained from doing that and I just kept quiet. I got my chicken sandwiches and I went home. But it's important to know each other's name. Because if we don't, sometimes we end up making fun of each other and that can be insulting, can be quite hurtful. And sometimes when we get our names wrong, you know, it's not necessarily the right thing and we'll do our best. Be patient with us as we get to know, especially if you have a very unique name. I think that's really special, but be patient with us. Christian community is so different from secular community. Secular community, the best case scenario for secular community is that you can come together, maybe watch a baseball game, maybe go eat dinner together, maybe go dance together, uh, play around the golf, go shopping together. The best case scenario for communities that are outside the church is you can have fun. Fun. There's really nothing wrong with fun. Fun defined it means light-hearted pleasure, right? And a lot of you look for fun. And I'm going to be quite honest. It's a lot more fun sometimes to have fun outside the church than actually in the church, right? And so fun is not something that we can really encounter in the church all the time. It's, it's something that we can, but we can experience something far greater. In fact, fun is kind of like a drug because the more you experience it, the more you want. And if you don't get it, the more despair your life becomes. And so sometimes it's kind of like a narcotic. Christian community is so different because in Christian community, we don't experience fun necessarily. We experience joy. Joy is a feeling of great pleasure and happiness to find. And in the New Testament, joy is defined as a feeling of good pleasure and happiness that's dependent on who Jesus is, not on who we are. Because God is the creator of joy, because God created joy, joy is the fruit of the spirit. What we can encounter in Christian community where other communities cannot even come close to is we can encounter joy. Can I get an amen to that? Amen. That means that on this resurrection Sunday, what God will love for you to experience that Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead, but how we encounter the joy of that is when we live in Christian community. So Sunita, I'm tired of experience or wanting to live for fun. I wanna live for joy. I agree with you, Pastor Peter, because joy comes from being in Christian community because it's initiated by God. Now, there's nothing wrong with other communities that we're a part of and we're different associations. There's nothing wrong with that. God is, has no problem with that, but there's something different about Christian community. We are chosen by God for Christian community. It is not something that we can opt out of. It's not something we can opt into. We are chosen by God for Christian community because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And it grows us and it, it makes um, God glorified and it also produces joy. But there's this interesting thing about how we form community. How many of us became St. Peter's basketball fans this year? Unless right? They, unless they ruined your bracket. <laughs> unless they ruined your bracket. I don't even 
didn't pay attention to college basketball, but this upset over Purdue and this small New Jersey college basketball team got me really excited. And I felt like I had some sort of affiliation with them just because I was from New Jersey. And I was excited. I had fun watching parts of the game. Now, after they were out, I have to say, I kind of wanted Duke to win because I went to Duke Seminary. And even when I see someone wearing a Duke hat, I feel this sort of kinship and relationship with them for no other reason but because we went to the same school. Those are great affiliations. Those are great ways to have fun. But what unites us in the church is that we are brought together because of Jesus Christ. Our commonality is our relationship with Jesus Christ. And Christ died and he rose again so that we could be brought together and unified in community with him and with, other, with one another. And that is what the resurrection reminds us. That is what the Bible teaches us. That's right. So today what we're going to do is we want to share with you and focus on how the resurrection of Jesus Christ, how does that allow you and I to live in Christian community? What can we do so that we can enter into that Christian community? That's what we want to talk about. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 13 to 19. I'm going to read from the New Living Translation. The New Living Translation. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 to 19. If you ever want to grab a, a sort of a, a good understanding of the gospel, what does the gospel mean? Ephesians, the entire chapter of 2, is really probably the best chapter in all of the New Testament that helps you and I explain the, the sort of the consequence or the result of what happened to the death and resurrection of Jesus. Here's what it says in verse 13. This is what Paul says. But now you have been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you have been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with his commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross. And our hostility towards each other was put to death. He brought this good news to, of peace to you Gentiles who were far away from him and peace to the Jews who were near. Now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. So now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. This is the word of God. Let's bow our heads for a moment of prayer. And so God, we come to you today. And as we look and unpack this text, would you truly teach us that how the resurrection of Jesus Christ allows us to truly live in Christian community. So I pray that the words that come out of Sunita's mouth and my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts in this room, I pray, God, that it would indeed be pleasing unto you. And it's in your name that we pray. And all of God's people said... Amen. 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 So Paul is writing this letter to the church at Ephesus, and the church is made up of converts to Christianity. There are Jews and there are Gentiles, and basically anyone who wasn't a Gentile, a Jew, excuse me, was considered Gentile. Now, if you read the verses leading up to this one, you will see Paul's discussion, particularly to the Gentiles, reminding them about God's mercy and God's grace poured out upon them, demonstrated through Jesus. He reminds them that they used to be outside of the family of God, and they were called what was considered, quote, uncircumcised heathens. Those are his words, not mine. They lived without God and without hope. But Christ came and changed all of that. Paul is reminding that community, and he's reminding our community, us here today, that the resurrection actually creates 
community, that there is this supernatural resurrection that creates a supernatural unity and it is embodied in Christian community. So how does it do that? How does the resurrection create community? And we're just gonna be talking about two things. First, the resurrection creates community because Jesus unites, him, unites us in him. Jesus unites us in him. Look at verse 13. But now you have been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you have been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. Jesus' blood destroyed the barrier of separation between Gentiles and God. Now, sin separated them from, separated people from God. It still does. But God's law had only provided a way for Jews to be reconciled back to God. It was through the sacrifice of animals. But they were also to keep God's law, like the men being called to circumcision. It was a sign of their covenant relationship with God as God's people. But when Jesus was crucified on the cross, he took on all of our sins, Jews and Gentiles and everyone else. He became the sacrifice that fulfilled God's law completely once and for all. Jesus' sacrifice also made the law of circumcision unnecessary. Gentiles could be God's people as well, but not because of circumcision, because of the work of Christ. Paul is reminding the Gentiles that they are now citizens and members of God's household, even though they remain uncircumcised. After Jesus' resurrection, there is nothing that prevented the Gentiles from being full and active participants in the households of God. They had been brought near to God, not because of birthright or human ritual, but because of the blood of Jesus. And it is the same for us. It is the blood of Jesus shed on the cross that cleanses us from all of our sins. And it seals us in this covenant relationship with Christ. Amen? Amen. We have been united with Christ and we have been made alive with Christ and he made it possible. And through our faith, our belief that Jesus is the son of God, that he lived a perfect and sinless life, that he died on the cross from our sins, but that he rose again on the third day as the scripture said he would. Our belief in Jesus Christ is what brings us together, us united with God, with Jesus as our savior. Once we were far away, but now God has brought us near. We are united with him and it is because of Jesus Christ. But Jesus also unites us with one another. Look at verses 14 through 16. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross and our hostility toward each other was put to death. Like the Jews and Gentiles, we also need to be reconciled to one another. Like the sign of the cross reminds us, God reconciles us first to himself and then to one another. Remember, I told you earlier that the Jews called the Gentiles uncircumcised heathens. Well, Jews and Gentiles had been separated by religion and ethnicity and culture. And now Jesus had united them into one new community. He had brought peace where there had once been hostility. 
So Paul is talking about this wall of hostility that was between the Jews and the Gentiles, and that it was an actual physical wall that was in the temple of Jerusalem. And it meant that the Gentiles could be inside and closer to, the God, to God, but Gentiles had to be outside. Now, can you imagine if we had a wall here at Metro where men had to be on one side and women on another side, or maybe we were sectioned off by our ethnicity? Unfortunately, this is the history of this culture, if you, um, excuse me, of this country. If you know history, you know there was a time when we were separated and segregated, right? But that's not how God would have us to be. The Gentiles were to be kept out of the temple because they were uncircumcised. But now these Jews who had converted to Christianity brought that same philosophy with them into this new Christian community. They used the law of circumcision to separate themselves from the Gentiles and to condemn them. These Jesus-believing Jews said that these Jesus-believing Gentiles could not be a part of the body of Christ. That's crazy. And Paul recognizes it. Paul says no. Paul teaches them that when Jesus died on the cross, he broke down that wall that separated Jews from Gentiles. He made unnecessary the law of circumcision. And so the Jews had no right to demand anything else of the Gentiles. Rituals, culture, nothing should be a barrier to them anymore. Jesus destroyed division when he died on the cross. Now, we are not Gentiles or Jews, but sometimes we act that way. We let race, ethnicity, culture, socioeconomic status, political party, we, we, we use anything we can think of sometimes to separate ourselves from one another. And sometimes that even happens in the church. So we have to ask ourselves, what conditions do we place on people? Do they have to, hey, sweetheart. What conditions do we place on people? Do they have to worship like us? Do they have to praise like us? Do they have to pray like us? Do they have to act like us? Or enjoy the same things that we enjoy? Do we put division between us and others because they don't behave the way we think they should behave? Paul reminds us that Jesus unites us, that we are united in him together. We are now one people in one body. Look at the verses we read. Do you see how often it mentions being united, being with one people, being together in one body? Yes, we are different, but we are united in the body of Christ. And isn't that an awesome thing? That no matter who we are or where we go, what our advantages and disadvantages are, what our abilities and disabilities are, that we are united in Christ. But we have to ask ourselves, if Jesus did the work, why is there still so much division? If Jesus did the work, why do we let divisions separate us? Because divisions are not of God. Our identity as children of God trumps any other affiliation we might have. 
It supersedes anything else by which we might be known or identified with, whether it's your ethnicity, your gender, your race, your, your political party, whatever, your team affiliation, those things matter. God made us unique and distinct and gave us bodies with history and culture and experiences and minds, but none of them should be a barrier to maintaining unity and community with our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's right. Sunday is probably still the most segregated day of the week, as Martin Luther King noted 60 years ago. But it's not because of Jesus. It's because of us. Christ has already done the work. We are already united in his body together. Our work is to strive so that nothing, and I mean nothing, separates us. We are not only freed from our sins by the blood of Christ, but by the resurrection that reminds us to live as resurrection people. We are alive with Christ and the sins of division cannot rule over us. This is why the church is called to do the work of racial reconciliation. The world would have us think that our differences should divide us or that we should place value on differences, that your ethnicity is better than mine or or my history is better than yours. The world would have you to think that we should not even be talking about racial justice. But here is Paul in the text, in the Bible, recognizing ethnic difference, but saying it should still unite us. It's there, but it does not separate us. The world would have us think that equality alone and elimination of oppression is the end goal, but those things only take us part of the way there. For us as Christians, Christian community means pushing not just to equality, but to unity. True justice, true Christian community is about unity because Jesus joins us together in him. We are different, but we are united. And this is the gospel. This is the power of the resurrection. One of the most beautiful moments I can recall most recently is during the women's ministry Bible study this past February. We were on Zoom and it was beautiful to hear the women interpret the study for themselves. We listened as Kathy Chun, a wife and mother of two young girls, described how she pictured the author's words and and she tried to describe as much as she could how she would like to see it rendered in an artistic drawing. A a widower and grandma, Morrisine Barmore, sang a hymn familiar in African-American churches. And Nicole Kim, a mom to an adult child, shared her testimony. It was the same God at work in different ways, uniquely in each one of his children. And you know what? Age, station in life, ethnicity, nothing was a barrier to us uniting with one another in worship and in study of our Lord. And this is why Christ died, so that nothing would separate us from him or from one another. The resurrection creates community because Jesus unites us together in him. Amen. Amen. Yeah, and so listen, uh, that's a beautiful theological truth, but the reality is that I know that many of you, perhaps a lot of you have actually gone through some real church trauma where you have not really experienced true Christian community in a church 
where when you can agree theologically that because Christ has resurrected from the dead, when you can agree to that and you believe in that, you realize that it's never really been practiced or your experience has never, you have never experienced church where you've actually encountered that kind of Christian community. I've talked to several of you, particularly the ones that have come new. And you say that, you know, I've come to this church because I was so hurt by my previous church and I didn't experience Christian community, so I'm here at Metro hoping to receive some healing. We hear that a lot as well. We actually hear also people saying, I'm leaving Metro because I can't find community here. Breaks our heart, breaks my heart. So I am not naive to believe and think for one moment that this is an easy thing. That when Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead, that we can just say, well, hallelujah to that. I agree with it. And we think all of a sudden we're gonna be united. It's not gonna happen that way. In fact, we have to actually do something. Though Christ has laid down the foundations and he removes all the barriers, God wants us to do something in order for us to achieve this unity, right? And so what do we have to do? The second thing that we're gonna talk about here about the resurrection is this. The resurrection creates community because Jesus unites us through the example of sacrifice. How did God choose to be in relationship with us? He had to sacrifice as well. God is God. He had to sacrifice for us in order to be in relationship with us through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Listen, you cannot have a resurrection unless there's a death. What I'm telling you right now is this, no matter how much you agree with the fact that Christ has resurrected from the dead, no matter how much you can say amen to that, if you are not willing to sacrifice for a fellow brother and sister in Christ and take on the example that Jesus Christ has done for us, we are not gonna experience Christian community. It just doesn't happen that way. We have to be willing to sacrifice for each other. But here's the problem. Here's the problem. The problem with the world and even with the church is this. We would want to live in our privilege. We want to live in privilege. Privilege exists in this world. It exists in this country. And the purpose of privilege is to divide and separate. Its purpose is never to unite. Will you give up your privilege to want to be sacrificed for? Will you give up your privilege for wanting to be sacrificed for? And can we as a church say, you know what? I will sacrifice for Metro Community Church. I will sacrifice for a fellow brother or sister in this church. I will take the hit for them. Will you be willing to do that? Will you be willing to surrender your privilege? I think the majority of us can maybe say yes to that with our minds, but with our hearts, we're not there. We don't want to give up our privilege. In fact, we love to live in privilege. We do. Listen, a couple years ago, um, Pastor Eugene Cho, who was here last Sunday, preached a wonderful message. That guy travels all over the world. He hit the one million mile mark on United Airlines. And so when you hit the one million mile mark, they let you gift a family member or a friend, one person, 1K status. <laughs> Anyone have any 1K status in this place? Let me see. Anyone? Raise your hand. Don't be shy. Any 1K <laughs> status people? Okay. I had it for two years. He gifted it to me. He said, I know you're really big and those economy seats don't work for you. I'll, I'll give it to you. I had it for two years because of the quarantine. It was only for one year I was supposed to have it, but I had it for two. And it was wonderful. I could upgrade to Economy Plus right when I booked the tickets. I don't have to wait. I don't have to pay. It's free. I board before everyone else. I board before group one, group two, group three, group four, group five, <laughs> and group six. I love that privilege. I wanted them to see me live in that privilege. In February, my flight got canceled in Chicago. I was in Chicago, it was a blizzard coming, and I needed to get out of there. If not, I knew I would be there for a few days. I got at the airport, I just found out my flight was canceled, and I'm thinking, now oh, I'm in big trouble, the storm's gonna come in a couple hours. I waited at the ticket line, and there was such a long line, I'm thinking it's gonna take forever, I'm not gonna be able to get rerouted to another flight, so do I just wait like everyone else, or do I exercise my privilege? 
I exercise my privilege. <laughs> you know United 1K has an 800 number where actually somebody picks up the phone? <laughs> you guys get a, please hold on, a, your representative will be with you in just a moment. For me, they pick up the phone. <laughs> And they said, thank you so much for being a United 1K member. How can I help you today? And I told them what I needed. They rerouted me to a flight in 10 minutes. I love that privilege. <laughs> I don't want to sacrifice that privilege. And therein lies the problem with Christian community. Because the world loves privilege. You love privilege. I love privilege. We come to this church not to sacrifice. We want somebody to sacrifice for us. We come to church not because we want to serve. We come to church expecting other people to serve us. Right? That's the mentality that we have. We love the privilege of being right rather than sacrificing that rightness so that we can be righteous. And that's what God is calling you and I to do, that we would sacrifice that. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here with the Greeks and the Jews, because the Jewish people didn't want to give up their privilege. Circumcision was a privilege. He's saying, would you give that up? They didn't want to give it up. They had to sacrifice that. That was hard for them because that was a clear sign that they are God's chosen people. Mm -hmm. They had to give up dietary laws, purity laws, in order for them to be in fellowship with their Jewish Gentile Christians. The Gentile Christians had to sacrifice as well. Because for a typical Greek in the first century, if you study Plato, they didn't believe that your spirit was affected by your cravings of your body and your flesh. So for a first century Greek, they just did whatever their flesh told them to do. And that's why Paul says in like Corinthians, like you guys are so promiscuous. Stop living like the typical Greeks. Your body does matter. And they had to sacrifice and realize and finally change their way of life and say, you know what? My body does matter to God. And so then I have to be careful in how I use or how I indulge in my fleshly desires. I have to learn to refrain. And that's what Paul is getting at here in verses 13 to 16. He's saying, don't you know that when Jesus Christ died on the cross and he resurrected from the dead, that he sacrificed. So you and I should follow that example and that we should sacrifice for one another. Because if we don't do that, if you and I are not willing to sacrifice for each other, we're going to be a country club, guys. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to be honest, it's a lot more fun outside of this church than inside of this church. I think the world has the corner market on having fun. And we should never as a church want to just live for fun. Mm -hmm. God wants you to encounter joy. That comes from the Lord. That does something for your soul. And it transforms you deep from within. And it truly satisfies where you won't thirst again. Are we willing to do that? Are we willing to sacrifice our privilege for the sake of community? We have about 30 different countries represented in this church. Very grateful for that. A church where there's that kind of diversity, it's not an easy thing where we can come together and connect. I think in theory, it looks really great and people say, well, I want to pastor a multi-ethnic church. I want to be a part of a multi-ethnic church. But over the past 18 years of our church's history, I've realized that's really hard. It's been a journey. What I love about Paul, he's saying that Jesus Christ has broken down the walls of hostility that divides us. Are we willing to sacrifice our privileges or our presuppositions of what we believe about certain people groups in this church so that we can bear together in solidarity and bearing in one another pain? Are we willing to do that? So when a black or brown brother or sister comes to us in church and they share that they still feel bitterness and anger and hurt because there is still institutional racism in this country that they encounter, rather than disagreeing with them or sharing with them some statistics of how much we've come along over the years, can we as Christians give up that right and enter into the journey of a fellow brother and sister and try to understand what they might be going through? 
that it's more than just one incident that they see on the news. We're talking, this is 400 years of oppression that they have to live with every time. See, that's true community, when we can sacrifice ourselves, our own presuppositions for that. If, you, if, if you're not Asian and you hear an Asian American brother or sister saying that they're afraid to go into New York City, that they are just so angry at what's going on, particularly with our Asian women, older Asian women, would we as a church be able to rally around our fellow Asian brothers and sisters and not try to say, you know what, you guys don't have it that bad though. <laughs> are we willing to actually sit and say, you know what, let me try to understand and please, please understand this. Asian Americans have been experiencing racism ever since we got into this country. It just didn't happen a couple years ago. Just because of media and stuff, we're able to see it more. Are we able to love each other and bear in solidarity? That's what I loved about Jesus. Jesus did that. He never stoned a woman that was caught in having an adulterous affair. All the leaders brought their stones to stone them. And Jesus says, if you're without sin, be the first one to cast that stone. Mm -hmm. And Jesus says, I will not cast that stone, even though he is without sin. He was willing to understand because his love was so profound. That profoundness of God's love doesn't happen. It will never emanate in our lives unless you and I are willing to sacrifice mm -hmm. for each other. Unless we're willing to do that for each other. Now, if you are uh, ethnic people, could I just encourage you for a moment here? That will we be able to, as a church and as a community, be able to sit down and realize that for once, maybe in our lives, that white people in this country have to grieve as well. They do. They don't know a world where they have not been in power. They don't know a world where they have never been in the minority. It's being challenged, particularly in the big cities around this country. Can we as a Christian community say, you know what, I'm gonna sacrifice for my fellow white brothers and sisters, and I will go and I will try my best to understand and grieve and lament because you don't, they don't know a world where they've never been in power and they were never the majority. It's being challenged now. Metro, over the next six weeks, our hope and prayer is that you would not only agree theologically that because Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead, that, uh, that we can live in unity. This is great. It's a powerful truth. But that doesn't happen unless you and I are willing to give up our privilege and sacrifice for each other. Because the best case scenario this world has when they talk about racial justice is equality. God doesn't care necessarily about equality more than he cares more about unity. Because when we're united, we don't have to worry about equality because Jesus unites us to him. And so will we as a church for the next six weeks and really for the rest of the life of this church, will we try to put ourselves in a place where we can sacrifice for one another? Listen, I've been married for 23 years. 23 years. I am, thank you. I like to believe, and I can say this, with my, I'm happily married. Now, I don't know if my wife is, you're gonna have to ask her. <laughs> don't take my word for it. But in those 23 years of me being married to her, I've realized the moments that she and I were closest and the, the, the moments when we became the most unified was when I was willing to sacrifice for her and when she was willing to sacrifice for me. I know that when I look at our two, two decades of life together. But deep down within me, I still don't want to sacrifice for her. There is something within me that wants to live in this privilege. Well, I just expect her to sacrifice for me and I don't sacrifice for her. And whenever I get into that mode, hear me on this, particularly you married couples, whenever we get into the place where we want our spouse to sacrifice for us, and we don't want to sacrifice for them, unity is called into question. Mm -hmm. And so will we as a church, 
aim to live in unity with one another as we are willing to sacrifice for each other? Are we willing to surrender our privilege and do that? This woman I'm, that's next to me, where I've had an opportunity to preach next to, it's a privilege. A couple years ago, our relationship was being really challenged. The unity of our relationship was in question. And it wasn't because of anything she did. It was because of me. You see, when I first met Sunita, I met her through a, a mutual friend, Vernon Walton. He's a pastor. And I wanted to hire a discipleship pastor at the time. And I said, yo, Vernon, can you, do you know anyone who would be a, a good discipleship pastor candidate? And he goes, I got the perfect person. All right, let me share with you our educational pedigree. Columbia University undergrad. I'm like, shoot. Man, I went to Montclair State. Man. And then he goes, and then she decided to get a master's degree at Harvard Law. I'm like, what? Who is this person? And then God called her to be a pastor, so she pivoted and she went to Duke Seminary. And I remember just thinking, she was like the seven-foot giant to me. Like, and I had a meter, right? And so, Sunita, has it ever been hard for you to live up to that educational pedigree? Yes. I think it's funny that you call me the seventh giant, but... <laughs> educationally, educationally. But yeah, it's, it's embarrassing and it's intimidating, and I think that there's an expectation that I should be perfect, that I should um, be so highly educated and intelligent, and I kind of want to temper people's expectations a little bit to remind them that I make mistakes, and I just work hard, but I make a lot of mistakes. Yeah, I have yet to see her make those mistakes yet, so she's still almost at that perfect level. But I offered her the position, she said no. She said, I just took on another job, so I can't do that. I said, okay. I didn't talk to her for about eight years. And then we had to hire a position for the pastor of Justice Advocacy and Compassion. And so what we did was we interviewed candidates from all over the country. They came, they interviewed. I'm just like, they're not the right people. I was praying one day, I said, God, come on, we need the right person. This is such an important position in this church. And then he brought you into my mind. Sunita, and I'm thinking, oh, I wonder what she's doing. I haven't talked to her since that moment we, we, we connected. And I just thought, well, let's see what happens. I didn't have her number, so I found her on Facebook, and I messaged her, and I said, Sunita, do you want to get together with breakfast for me? And so, listen, this, like, I, I reached out to your Facebook message. I hadn't talked to you in eight years. What were you thinking when I invited you for breakfast? Free food. I was <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I trusted you because we had a mutual friend, so I knew that. But um, more importantly, I, I like free meals. You like, so if you guys ever want to hang out with her, you're figuring out, what do I do to hang out with her? Just say, I'll buy you a meal, and you got her, right? And so, yeah, so we, I, I, we met up at a diner, and I said to her, I said, how's it going? This is eight years later since I've talked to her. And she said, yeah, you know, I, I really feel like God's calling me to like quit my job now and wants me to pastor in Englewood or be a part of an organization that really wants to support and help Englewood. And I remember just thinking, God, what a slam dunk this is going to be. <laughs> Long story short, she's here. She's here. And she's been here now for about four or five years now. It's been great. But here's the thing. Here's where there will start to be some disunity between she and I because she preaches here on Sundays. And you guys all know she has the gift of preaching, right? Yeah, you guys know that. I still remember when she preached at Ebenezer Baptist Church during Martin Luther King Day. About 50% of you were there. 50% of the audience was from Metro Church. The other 50% were from Ebenezer and from all over Englewood. Man, she tore that roof down. It was so powerful. I mean, man, it was just, it was so, I still remember it. I still remember the power of her sermon. And after that sermon, some of you came up to me and you actually said, hey, she's better than you. <laughs> And there's this one guy, man, he came up to me and he said, hey, she can replace you one day. 
And I remember thinking, why are you telling me this? Like, <laughs> you could talk amongst yourself about it. That's not the kind of transparency I'm looking for. Really, I'm not. I don't need to hear that coming out from your mouth. I don't need to hear that she's going to replace me one day or she's better than me. Just be quiet about it, right? <laughs> the seeds of doubt were being planted. And I start to feel uneasy about our relationship. And the great thing about Sunita, because in the black church tradition, an associate usually asks for the blessing from the senior pastor if they go speak at different places. And so Sunita was so respectful. She always sent me emails to, hey, I've been asked to speak at this church. Can I speak? Always said yes. But a couple years ago, she was starting to be asked to speak at church planting conferences. And here's where my privilege came into play. I thought to myself, why are they asking her to speak at a church planning conference when she never planted a church? I'm the senior passage, get the privilege. Get the privilege of I'm the one who planted the church. Why are they asking an associate pastor who's never planted a church to go and, plant, to, to go and speak at a church planning conference? I started to get angry. I started to get upset and bitter. And she would send me these emails and I'm like, oh, I don't want to read this thing. I don't want to say yes to it. Right? And the worst part of it is that my friends would go to these church planning conferences because they're church planners. And they would send me text messages with like fire emojis and all that <laughs> stuff. Sunita is fire. She's fired. I'm like, you're putting me on fire right now. <laughs> like I'm getting set on fire because of my rage and my anger. Right? And so the worst part was that I was a part of this leadership group with Peace Cazero. We met up every month. And our very first meeting, I was just minding my own business, putting my cream cheese on my bagel before the meeting started. <laughs> And this white pastor, Tyler, comes up to me and says, excuse me, Peter, you don't know me. I'm a planter in Brooklyn. I just want you to know that last month I was at a church planners conference. And I'm thinking, oh, God, here we go again. Yes. And he said, Sunita spoke. She changed my life. And he said, and I'm going to ask her to come and speak at our church one Sunday. Man, you know what I wanted to do? I want to take my bagel and smack him in the head with it. <laughs> and I want to say, you know what, Tyler? Get on emetro.org slash sermon and listen to one of my sermons because maybe you're going to want me at your church too one day. Right? <laughs> but I didn't do that, of course. But Sunita, I was feeling threatened by you. Yeah. I really was. And that is so crazy to me because, mind you, I had no idea any of this was taking place. Um, this was a war that was going on completely inside of him. <laughs> Um, but it's also strange for me to hear you say that you were threatened because I think that you're an amazing preacher. And I don't just, right? Right? Um, and I don't say that because you're my senior pastor and I stand on stage with you right now and you sign my paychecks, right? Like, but I, I do think that you're an amazing preacher. And I think what everyone, when I talk to so many of you and I ask you, why did you come to Metro? Why do you stay at Metro? I'm gonna tell you 90% of the time you're telling me it's because of Pastor Peter. And you're telling me that you love his vulnerability and how, how open and transparent he is and about how he makes the gospel so applicable to our everyday lives, amen? So this, again, this was an internal war that he was having, right? Um, because there are times when I've stood outside those double doors at the newcomer's quick stop and people have, I've been greeting people and people are like, where's Pastor Peter? Where is he? And I'm like, he's on sabbatical. <laughs> he's on vacation. He's coming back. Um, because you all know that he's a good preacher, great preacher. And, and we are honored and blessed to have you as our senior pastor. Well, thanks for affirming me. I really appreciate that. <laughs> But Metro, you got to understand, 
I started to feel threatened by her, and I started to not trust her anymore. This was my issue. It got so bad, thank God I'm still in, I'm in seminary for a doctorate program. I was in class, and one of my professors, he said, shame is the worst emotion any pastor can go through. Because it's such a deadly emotion, because shame doesn't teach you that you're capable of making mistakes. He says shame teaches you that you are a mistake. And when he shared that with me, I realized that's exactly what's going on with me and Sunita. You see, when she's being asked to speak at this church planning conferences, you know what's affirming in me? That I'm a mistake. And that's why they chose the one that's not a mistake to speak at that church planning conference. And so I asked God to forgive me. Of course, I was there at the class. I was crying. I was like, God, forgive me. Thank you for your forgiveness. And I just thought that would be it. But God said, you have to actually go and ask Sunita for forgiveness and you got to confess. And I didn't want to do that. Because I'm like, God, we're cool. You and me. She has no idea what's going on. I can just be silent about it. But he said, you have to for the sake of your unity and your relationship. And so I did. I gave up my privilege. I went into her office. I confessed it all. You had no clue. And then I said, will you forgive me? I didn't tell her to forgive me because you can't do that. <laughs> you can't just be like, I'm sorry. I said, will you forgive me? And then afterwards, she said, yes, of course. And I said, will you pray for me? And you prayed for me. That prayer was so powerful. Do you remember what you prayed for me about? No. <laughs> <laughs> it was so I, powerful she forgot. No, I didn't, I didn't remember because remember, all this stuff is coming at me at one time, right? This is when I'm just hearing about this. It's like a ton of bricks coming on me and I don't know what's happening except I realized in that moment that like, yes, this is my senior pastor and I can learn from him because he practices what he preaches. That it's, you don't just talk about forgiveness. You don't just talk about reconciliation. You don't talk about the unity of the church. You do the work to make sure that that is maintained. And that is what I remember thinking in that moment. And that was, I mean, that was, that was very powerful for me. And then I also started thinking very practically, like, now I feel guilty. <laughs> like, what do I do when somebody calls and asks me to preach? Do I tell you? Do I not tell you? So there was a lot of that kind of anxiety going on. But in retrospect, thinking about that moment now, I realized how much privilege you gave up in that moment because there was no reason for you to ask your subordinate, right? I'm the associate for forgiveness. And there was no reason for you to ask me to pray for you. But I have seen you do that not only with me, but others. And in that moment, what I, looking back on it, what I realized is that there was a power shift that happened, not because it had to, but because you wanted it to, to maintain the unity, not only of our um, friendship and working relationship, but also before the unity of the church. Well, that prayer that you prayed for me was so powerful because God finally showed me something that I hadn't seen. And what he showed me was simply this. The church has done a spectacular job over its history, silencing the voice of women, particularly women pastors and women leaders. And what God showed me that time when you were praying for me, that God had called you to be one of the women that he has chosen to go out all over the world to speak so that women, but more importantly, men, would be able to learn how to be a good follower and disciple of Jesus Christ through your voice, the voice of a woman. And so when God showed me that, I remember, because at Metro, we have a, for every pastor, you can only miss four Sundays, four Sundays to speak at other places. Uh, but I told Sunita, well, since God has shown me this, like, you can, you can miss more than four Sundays. Just let me know. We'll approve it. And, you know, Sunita gets asked to speak all the time. Sometimes by March, she's already at a fourth one. That's how often she gets asked to speak. And so she says she would do that. And, uh, and I still get emails from her all the time. Hey, I've been asked to speak at this place. It's not fun. Fun. It's far greater than fun. It's joy. 
It's joy. Every time she sends me an email, I feel like she's inviting me to the front row seat of her life. She's allowing me to capture a glimpse of how God is using her. And I think to myself, if I didn't do the hard work of dealing with those issues, I might have fired her one day because of my insecurities. Will you sacrifice your privilege on this Easter Sunday? Will you sacrifice for a fellow brother and sister in this church for the sake of unity? Because if we don't do that, if we're just going to play church, the world is so much more fun than here. But what we do have is that if we're willing to give up our privilege and sacrifice for each other, wanting to sacrifice rather than wanting others to sacrifice for us, wanting to serve rather than to be served, then I do believe we can encounter true joy that this world can never understand. That's my hope and prayer for you. Let's bow our heads for a moment of prayer. So could you make that commitment today? Some of you, maybe this is the first time you've been back in a while. And maybe you've lived your life over the last couple of months, maybe a couple of years from this pandemic, and you said, you know what? I don't need a church. You need it a lot more than you believe. Yes, you can find fun outside the church, but you cannot find joy. Will you sacrifice and say, you know what? I'm going to now be a part of this church. I'm going to sacrifice for a fellow brother and sister in this church. I'm going to sacrifice, and I don't want to people to sacrifice for us. I am going to serve. I am not going to expect people to serve me. Let's go to God. Let's make that commitment on this Easter Sunday and let's just see what God has planned for us. Why don't you go to him right now? God, you're just so amazing to me that even though we fall so many times, you still look at us with love. You understand the depth of our brokenness. And so thank you for your grace, your mercy. And God, I pray that you would help us as a church as we begin this series, that you would begin to help us to be willing to surrender our privileges so that we can begin to sacrifice for these people, these amazing people you brought into this place that you call your own. Help us to do that. And I pray that community would be able to be experienced, that it's deeply rooted in Jesus so that we can experience more than just fun, but true joy. Bless us, guide us, and may we never, never get discouraged from doing the hard work of building community here in this church, even if it means we have to sacrifice a whole lot. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.